So, uh, yeah, so I, I just wanted to share some thoughts tonight. I don't know how clear it'll be. I hope it'll be clear. Um, it just came out of a, um, a conversation Chris and I were having while we were in, um, in Salt Lake. And it stirred my thinking a little bit, and I just wanted to talk about it. I've often said to you that uh, you often become guinea pigs because I kind of muddle through what I'm thinking and try it out on you, and then, and then it gets tweaked and, and, uh, and adjusted and clarified, and then other people get the best. But uh, I hope this will be good, uh, good for us tonight. So I wanted to, to call this, uh, begin with the beginning in mind. Um, I'm still on a, a great journey about, about uh, understanding the whole character and nature of God, the whole essence of the divine, which probably more so now at 61 than I ever was at 21. And then probably come 41, I thought I knew most of it. Um, and then the further I've gone from that, you know, the, the more you realize that uh, we've actually dimensionally put God in a box, even though our box might be bigger than some people's boxes and some people's box might be bigger than our box, but nevertheless, it's still a box. And uh, within that, we become restricted in our ability to fully embrace um, the expansiveness of who God is, what God is like. And for me, what is most important in there is, is the reach of the more beautiful gospel. Um, so we may, we may run a, a video of Rob Bell next week, possibly. Partly because I'll have a bandage on my head and I don't understand you looking stupid. And uh, secondly, because what Rob says, I think, is, is very good to broaden and expand our, um, our thinking. So the whole concept of begin with the beginning in mind comes from a kickback against uh, conventional cultural thinking in progressive business, which is you are told begin with an end in mind. That anything you do, you must begin with an end in mind. That what's most important is you must know where you're going to finish up, where you're going and what that looks like. Now, if we just take that advice on its own, it sounds like really good advice, doesn't it? It sounds like that's something really good, that's true, you know, know what the end is and, and go for it. Uh, but actually, the more you read the Bible and the more you understand God, the less that becomes true in the context of the kingdom of God. That it's far more important that we begin with a beginning in mind than it is that we begin with an end in mind. So, for example, in the change to Q, I have no idea where Q is really going in the long term. So we haven't begun with an end in mind that in one year, five years, ten years, this is where we'll be. We've begun with a beginning in mind that we know this is what we're supposed to do right now. And we're going to believe God and we believe that that beginning will produce beginnings, which will produce beginnings, which will produce beginnings. So I have just three, three scriptures at the beginning that I just wanted to throw up on the screen for you to help us get a context of this whole thing. And the first one is in Psalms 103 and verse 17. It says, but from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. Now, of course, and his, right, his righteousness, right? His righteousness, the Lord's righteousness, God's given righteousness to their children's children. Now, of course, we have a problem in some of this. Of course, fear doesn't mean to be afraid there. Fear means as we reverence and recognize God for who he truly is. That, that really is the essence. But um, the other thing that is on there is from everlasting to everlasting. I, I've talked to you a lot about time and how we, because of our Greco-Roman heritage, see time like this, with a beginning and an ending. So if you see it as that, then God is here because this is everlasting backwards. And God is here because this is everlasting forwards. And so we've come away from God, because now we're human beings, and of course that's where then you get all this issue that the primary objective of the gospel is the end. It's the death, it's the translation to eternal life, if you believe that model, and therefore we meet Jesus, we meet God, so, you know, we, from here to here, and of course that, that carries with it many, many problems about how we understand life. 
and why I have said to you that a lot of theology is what I call destinational theology, um, in that it is all about uh, getting to heaven, get your sins forgiven, get to heaven. When the Bible actually teaches what I call directional theology, which is not about where you go when you die, but the direction in which you live. Now, uh, I'm, I'm not here to talk about time extensively, but the truth is we need to take those two ends of that line if we're going to be right to Scripture and right to Hebrew thinking and right to the kingdom. And actually, we, we should see time like this. So what we've got is everlasting here. This is everlasting. So from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. So, so what happens is that we have a constant cycle. We are not at, at the mercy of, of life having to wait until we die for this eternal bliss. Because actually, everlasting is this thing that goes like this. Now, again, the conversation of heaven, what does heaven look like, etc., is another conversation. But the one point I would make in this just for now, is that when everlasting is circular or cyclical like that, what you will notice is God is never any closer or any further away from you at any point ever, wherever you are in the journey of life. He remains the same. He is constant. He is not back there at creation and out there at the end of time. He is within time in an eternal way that means he is always near us. He never forsakes us. That distance from us to God never ever changes. So when you feel that it's hard, when you feel that somehow God's not there, it's just a feeling. Don't condemn yourself, don't start feeling insecure, don't start feeling shame and guilt because it's just a feeling. The reality is that God is always the same distance from us and to us while ever we live in this understanding of that. That's why it says from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him because that same love is always experienced and always felt. So we always need to know that we are never out of or away from or compromised in the context of the love of God towards us. And nothing that we do in that cycle makes God any further away or any closer. So our goodness doesn't make him closer and our sin doesn't make him further. He's always the same. So we can come with an open heart before him to talk to him and thank him and then understand that he has not removed himself from us and he's just as close as ever and therefore his presence is with us and all the benefits that come with that are ours. So just two more verses as we kind of set the, the tone. One is uh, Genesis 12 and verse 1. And uh, Genesis 12 verse 1 says, The Lord had said to Abraham... Go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land that I will show you. Now, I, I like this verse because it supports the theory, begin with the beginning in mind. The land that I will show you was, was not clear. It was not specific. The instruction was leave and go and I'll show, right? Leave and go and I'll show. So Abraham, if he was waiting to begin with an end in mind, probably would have never left and therefore would have never gone, therefore God could have never shown, and he could have never inherited. So the issue is, in the kingdom of God, if we're waiting around to see the end, the truth is we'll probably never start or initiate the beginning, because we begin with the beginning in mind. God said, leave and go, and I'll show. Now, there's another verse that backs that up in Hebrews 11, verse 8, and this is one of my very, very favorite verses which says, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place that he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. So the issue in the kingdom is not about knowing where you're going, it's about the willingness to go. And of course, if you think this through, it makes a lot of sense, because if the currency of the kingdom of God is faith, and without faith it's impossible to please God... 
uh, and that the one who believes sees that he's rewarder of those who diligently seek him, then the truth is faith is attached to the going. Faith is attached to beginnings. You don't need faith if you always know the ending. What you need is faith when you only know the beginning. But that's why the endings can be so amazing because the problem is when we start to specify endings, we actually close God in and say it has to be this. When I'd rather say, you bring us into wide open spaces is the promise of scripture. You bring us into good pastures. You bring us where living waters flow. You lead us where our cup overflows. So I'm just happy to have a beginning. So, so we have to learn to respond to the beginnings of God, right? And that's where the faith comes in because we begin with a beginning in mind, not with an end in mind. Now, uh, I want to tie a few things together here that seem... Not connected, but you'll see that they are connected as we just walk through this. Um, Jesus was not born on December the 25th. How many of you know that? Now, I don't mean this December 25th, you know, past. You say, of course he wasn't. It was, it was December 25th of, um, you know, 3 BC. Uh, no, he wasn't born on 25th of December at all. Um, now, the question is, why might that, be important to know. Is, is, it, is it relevant? Is it irrelevant? Well, for some of you, it'll be irrelevant because you're not bothered. Uh, but for others of you, you'd like to know why that might be important to know. Because um, the question would be, when was his birth? Because we, we kind of focus on, on the death of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus. And uh, of course, you do realize that um, we have a wrong date for the crucifixion as well because the crucifixion should mirror Passover day in the Jewish calendar for some very specific reasons that we've talked about. But we have it always at Easter, which was Easter, which was a pagan festival, in the same way that um, we adopted Christmas as 25th of December because that's the winter equinox when, when, in their eyes, the sun rises again from the horizon to begin to move up into the sky after the shortest day, which was on the 21st of December. So, so our celebration of Christmas is an adoption of a pagan festival um, that begun about 800 uh, AD. And uh, part of the reasoning was that we need to pull pagans into Christianity, so why don't we put our feast on their feast and I don't have a huge problem with that because we've talked about that in the context of people being afraid of Halloween and we've said well why don't we have our feast on their feast why don't we celebrate all hallows and uh, so, so I don't have a problem with that however there are some issues about this if you're interested that that will help you again to understand the process of the workings of God in his goodness towards us and how they are consistent so, so when his birth was, might carry some significance in understanding the true nature and the process of God's interaction with humanity. So to do this, you have to look back a little bit and understand that um, the, the Jewish model is important to us in understanding uh, the work of God with humanity and the relationship of God with humanity. We can't get away from that. However, uh, I have huge problems, which I've told you before, and my problems are probably worse now than they've ever been, with the statement, Judeo-Christian. There is no such a thing as Judeo-Christian. To use an English word, it's an oxymoron. It's either Judeo or it's Christian, but it can't be Judeo-Christian. Because Judaism is not rooted in the manifestation of the Christ. Judaism is rooted in the looking for a Jewish Messiah and the establishment of the law and the rule of Israel as a dominant nation, not the kingdom of God and the rule of Christ. So Jesus did not come to, to, to bolster the claims of Judaism and to allow Judaism to be the dominant understanding because what was at the core of Judaism was Moses and the law and Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish it but I did come to fulfill it so that when it's fulfilled it can be taken away because now we move from the old covenant to the new covenant and the new covenant is not Judeo-Christian, the new covenant is, is Christian, it's in Christ, okay? 
And our hope is only found in Christ. However, um, so much of our ancient text that we understand as the canon of Scripture or the Bible um, comes from a Jewish, or then going back before there was Jewish-Hebrew, going Jewish and Hebrew uh, context. So therefore, um, it doesn't make it more holy because it comes from that context, but it means that if we don't look at it from that context, we may not fully understand how and why this thing develops and what the emerging, emerging story is. So, so we find ourselves in the Old Testament um, uh, uh, lost into a culture that is the means of describing and expressing and illustrating a story that is going to emerge for us to what becomes the revelation of Christ, the Word made flesh. Now, we've done enough talking about, um, you know, uh, infallibility, inerrancy, and all that stuff, and I would state again, because I have no embarrassment, I don't try and cover it up, I do not believe that the Bible as it stands is inerrant, that it is without any errors. I do not believe that it's infallible. I do believe it's inspired. I do believe it's precious. I do believe that there's a fantastic golden thread that runs through all the nonsense that sometimes humanity brings into it. My, my strongest argument for that to date that I use when I'm out teaching is from uh, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 1 where Paul says, I want you to remember, brothers, how Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, how he was buried, how he rose again according to the Scriptures. And uh, in the circumstances I've grown up with, what people do is they support that statement by using other Scriptures in the New Testament. But when Paul wrote that, there was no New Testament. And Paul didn't think that he was writing the New Testament. None of those writers perceived that they were writing what we now know as Scripture. They were just addressing situations. Now, now I, I think there is value and gift and anointing and God and Spirit in all of that. However, to support what Paul says by quoting other New Testament Scriptures, even the Gospels which were written after this, would be a distortion of use of, of, of the text to support another text. So when Paul says according to the scriptures, he was not talking about John 3.16, because John 3.16 didn't exist until the 90s, around 94, 95 AD, it didn't exist. And Paul's writing this about 45 AD. So the scriptures that we've used to say, yes, but it says this and it says that, weren't even in existence. So we have to defined from that that when Paul said the scriptures he was actually meaning the old scriptures the, the prophets the, the law books Deuteronomy Genesis all the way through those books which were which were orally and 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 um, what do you call it when you write something written text I was looking for a cleverer word but there you go um uh, that Paul was looking at. So, so there is a reference point of how does the story emerge through these cultures and through these people to give us insight into what the kingdom of God is about. Now, um, we have to therefore look back as well as looking forwards. We have to look back for a reference point in order to move forward and to take measurements of that reference point. So, um, when I was in the building industry, um, and particularly when I was doing building surveying, uh, we had something called a benchmark, and we have one on this corner of the church here. A benchmark is, it's, uh, everybody in surveying or building will know it because it's, a, it's a, a thing with three lines on like that. And this line here is what's called a datum point in that it is an exact measurement done by theodolite for how far above sea level that mark is. So we would know exactly from the corner of this building how far above sea level we are. So we can not only plot our place on the map in terms of the uh, 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 length and breadth, but also height and depth. And that these things become important for floodplains and all 
kinds of things. That's the datum point. But somebody didn't, didn't stand here one day with a pair of binoculars and somebody down at Scarborough with a big pole on the edge of the beach looking from there. That's not how it happened. What happened is that, that they, they set a datum in Scarborough and then they set a datum uh, in the next village and then they set a datum in the next village and the next village. So there is a progression that leads you to when you get to here, you know what this is because of how you looked back at those other measurements. So, so the idea that, well, we, we don't need to have any interest in the Old Testament, it's completely irrelevant, uh, is lazy, okay? And, and potentially irresponsible because if we are going to understand the full expression of Christ and want to understand to where we can define it, then looking back is very important because these are the datum points that we have to uh, look back to. So, so in the Jewish um, culture, there were seven feasts that were instituted and you might think, well, okay, so seven feasts, who gives a flip? Well, who cares, you know? But um, if you understand ancient writing and if you understand ancient cultures, you find that um, these, these marker points always mean something. They're always there to draw your attention and the focus of your attention to something important. So they, they, as I've said many times about these old stories, there's a meaning beyond the meaning. There's an importance beyond the importance. There's, 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 when you talk about reading between the lines and looking behind the shadows, uh, there is massive, massive significance. Even in the context of old Hebrew writing, every number, every letter has a corresponding number. And when you start getting into that issue of what's called numerology, it's also fascinating how you see that these things were written, um, again, probably without doubt with some divine inspiration, uh, how the numerology, what the numbers mean and how the numbers add up is quite, is quite fascinating. So even in Genesis chapter 1, the number of sevens and the number of threes and the number of multiplications of sevens and threes of the, of the mention of names and incidents is fascinating, and I'll leave that to Rob Bell next week if we, uh, if we put that on when he talks about everything spiritual. So these seven feasts, and incidentally again, just by means of, of being, uh, trying to be a good teacher to you, uh, the number seven is always significant when you come across it in Bible. Anybody know why? Why is the number seven always significant? What does, what does the number seven denote? Perfection. Finished. So on the seventh day God rested, finished his work. Seven. So you always find in Scripture that seven is the number of completeness. So what, what would three be? What would, what would the number three indicate? It's, it, it comes from the Trinity. It comes from the, the Godhead, the completeness of the Godhead, Father, Son, Spirit. So when three crops up, you are usually dealing with some issue of thought that's wanting to give you a deeper understanding of Father, Son, Spirit. Who knows what six tends to denote? Man, yeah, humanity. Six is the number of humanity, man made on the sixth day. That's why in... In John's apocalyptic writing, the mark of the beast is 666, which is, is that three men? Is that 666 men? I don't know, is it, you know. Um, whatever it is, you can understand why those numbers were used. So actually, they were indicating something that was beyond the normal. Now, you might not like this, and, and you're entitled not to like it. You know, nobody's forcing you to like it. However, uh, it is a reality and it is something that is a fact in the context of understanding the emergence of, of uh, not just Christianity but society and cultures throughout the world. If, if you take the time to understand a little bit of how the culture works, you get a lot more understanding then of what things mean. So, so there were seven feasts because this was a word from God. Those seven feasts uh, were... And some of these we, we've talked about, so I'm not going to go over them. Passover, uh, unleavened bread, first fruits. Of course, these were replicated in the crucifixion on Passover, the lamb that 
that gives its life to break the power of death. Unleavened bread was, was uh, bread with the yeast taken out. It was about in this bit is the purity, the absolute purity that's not corrupted by anything. First fruits is the day when Jesus rose from the dead, which was when you brought the first grains of the new harvest and said, look, there's new life, there's a new harvest. Weeks we know of as Pentecost, which was 50, 50 days after uh, this. And uh, that was when the Holy Spirit was poured out. And uh, it was also a celebration, which was interesting of, again, I'm just covering this very briefly, you took the sheaves that were the first fruit, you ground them into flour, and in the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, which was when the church began, the day of Pentecost, you add yeast to it. So here you take yeast out, because that's the purity of Christ, the perfect, the perfect sacrifice. Here you put the yeast back in. So what is the church? The church is the pure flour that comes from who Christ is, mixed with the yeast of corruption, which is who we are, and they bake two loaves with that, which now become the bread for the world. So imperfection is built in to what the church is. Your weaknesses, your imperfections, your faults, your failings are baked into the bread. Get over it. It's okay. Forgive yourself. It's fine. That's what the image of this is all about. Our imperfections were sucked in to his perfection and the two make what we call the church and we're as much a part of the church as Christ is. So our weaknesses and our failings are as much a part of what the church is as Christ's successes and as those two work together, that, that produces the gospel. Then we have, uh, um, in the seventh month, we have trumpets and atonement and tabernacles, which I'll, I'll just leave that for now, but those were the seven... Um, uh, the seven feasts. And each was reflecting a, a recurring revelation of steps in a cycle of wholeness and completeness. Now, of course, how many of you, how many of you think that uh, huge, huge portions of Israel's society would see them just as feasts? Oh, it's the, we just, it's the feast. We just turn up. Um, because there was not an understanding that something was being said. Now, now, we can be just the same. Well, it's just this, it's just that, it's just the other. I want us to try and grab the fact that within here were some very powerful messages that ought to help us. So we know Jesus was crucified on Passover, which helps us understanding what he was accomplishing in his death. So then the question, as I've said to you, is, is there, are there other significant connections with the feast that might help us further understand the purpose and the work of Christ? Does the construct of the Jewish feast recorded in Scripture bear any relevance for us today? Or is it just for Jews? Do they have anything to say that might help us unlock the mysteries of the divine and the eternal? Um, and how does that work in the context of time? Because that was then and this is now. So let me just... Um, a very tiny bit on time. And again, if we play the video next week, uh, Rob Bell will say a little bit more about that. But we only perceive time in this one dimension. So we only understand time in one way. You can only go one way in time. That's what we understand, isn't it? You can only go one way. You go forward in time. And uh, that's pretty sad, really, because, um, uh, because we only perceive it that way, and we think you can't go back in time, you can't go sideways in time to dodge stuff. You can't go up and down to miss stuff. You just go forward in time. Uh, however, when you get an insight on the structure and culture of the universe, big out there into the billions of, uh, of universes there are, and small down to the, you know, your, your, your smallest microbiology, uh, here's what you find. It all misbehaves. That is according to what we call our Newtonian law. How many of you know what the Newtonian law is? It's Isaac Newton, not John Newton. Okay, he wrote, he wrote Amazing Grace. Isaac Newton was the guy who, who well, he didn't invent gravity, but he, he discovered the theorem in the force of gravity. So he's the guy of the apple falling. We have the story in school of the apple falling on his head. And so he, uh, he discovered the, the theory of gravity. Now, of course, the story's a little broader than that. 
Uh, but Newton introduced something to us, which is that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So if you've ever had the little balls, you know, the six balls, and you push that one and it knocks the one here. And, um, and all, seems, all seems fine and in order. And of course, we also get from Newton uh, what we call cause and effect. Every, every effect must have a cause. And the effect must, must, must mirror... The cause, cause and effect, is what we get from Newton's theory. However, the problem is, the more we understand science and the more you go out there, the further you get, uh, the more you find that those rules don't apply. And as we go into, into, into microbiology and molecular physics, you find that these little things that are there and these big things that are there uh, have no qualms about, about breaking the rules. So you and I are both probably mystified by things like black holes and the fact that now there are certain things in the universe that they have worked out mathematically from what they have gathered that, that it weighs 100 billion tons but will fit on, on a teaspoon. It's like... You've got to be making this up. What, the fascinating thing to me is, you know, and again, I'll let, I'll let, if we show Rob Bell, I'll let him talk about these amazing things called quarks, uh, which are things that are much smaller than atoms and can be in two places at once, which we say you can't be in two places at once. But the problem is, when you get into that kind of physics, you find that there are things that can be in two places at once. And don't ask me how they did it, but they, a quark can be divided, right? And a quark's smaller than an atom, it's smaller than a neutron, a quark is tiny, but a quark can be divided. And uh, so they had a quark, a divided quark, and they had one part of the divided quark in California, and they had the other half in New York. And whatever the one did in California, the one in New York replicated exactly. There was no connection between them, no physical connection, but it did the same thing. And there are all kinds of fascinating things that are being discovered now in, uh, in molecular biology and, and uh, um, you know, astrophysics and all that stuff that are fascinating that are showing us actually that what we had nicely said are the rules are only the rules where we said they're the rules and there are there are whole aspects of creation where that don't obey those rules. Now, I like that. I think that's absolutely wonderful. Now, those of you who are absolutely throw a dicky fit if you can't have order uh, will hate that kind of stuff because nobody's figured out how you control it. Something bigger, something greater than us, something beyond our human ability to control and our human ability... To, to think is, is, is somehow making all that stuff work. And it's also fascinating that there are aspects of microbiology that, that in one second they change and they're never the same again. So you think every single second that thing being observed becomes different and it never goes back to being what it was when you saw it. So in, in our universe, what I'm trying to open you up to is in the bigness that way and the smallness this way are such amazing expressions of rule-breaking, rule-bending, life-giving, incredible, amazing, connecting, glorious things that we limit ourselves when we say, well, we just can't be bothered to understand. Now, most of us, like me, I, I can grasp information pretty well but a lot of that stuff is like you know it's like out here for me um, and I know sometimes when we talk about some of this stuff for you it's a little bit out there but if we can grasp the principle of something bigger something greater something is within and behind and among all this that is what the kingdom of God is all about it's not about this rigid you were born a sinner You've done wrong, you need a saviour, you struggle your way through life, you die, you go to heaven. We are part of something that's much more than that and much bigger than that, that from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. So as we begin to unlock these things, that's where we um, get an understanding. So um, 
Let, let me just give you one other illustration. I think some of these illustrations will do you more good than the, the theology, so if we put some of these in, you'll be good. I really love this thought. This really helps me. Okay, so consider dropping a pebble in a pond. Just a very simple act, dropping a pebble in a pond. But dropping that pebble in the pond has all kinds of actions and reactions and which are really fascinating because the first thing that happens when the pebble goes in if, is we make, we make a hole in the pond. That's where the pebble goes, down there. So the first thing we do is we make a hole in that thing. And then a millisecond later, that hole implodes on itself, and then we have water firing all the way up here, which then is going to come back down as droplets onto the surface of the water. And so now if we look, this is our body of water. What then happens is where the stone was, here, we have something called ripples. Which direction do ripples go? Ripples go in all directions equally at the same time. And every one of those droplets that falls creates another series of ripples. Every single one, series of ripples. Now, instead of thinking of time, like the surface of the lake, which looks flat and straight, if you think of time as the volume of the lake, and understand that when something goes into that lake, it doesn't just go forward, it goes down, it goes up, it goes sideways, and it goes outwards in every direction imaginable. Now, if you were to look at this concept in sound waves, if you could see the sound waves, you would see the sound waves are moving the air in a very similar fashion to these concentric rings. They're moving everywhere. Light has a similar process. And so we find that in the context of our world, in the context of our universe, this idea of just going one direction is very much a human contextual thing because everything else in nature has this wonderful way of going in all directions, spreading out everywhere which is why I've said to you, for me, the wonder of the cross is that when it happened, it was like a pebble in a pond. And for all men, for all women, for all boys, for all girls of all type, of all genders, forever, whoever they were, the work of the cross goes out and reaches them. It is not confined to a moment in history that then can only move forward because this goes into what we call from everlasting to everlasting. So it's reaching out to people who've never had the gospel as we understand the verbal gospel Preach to them because it's going out. It's reaching back to people we never knew. Who didn't just live on the face of this planet before we were a twinkle in our mother's eye. Who lived on this planet centuries ago, millennia ago. That same gospel reached out to them. And we have to open our understanding to know that the wonder of this gospel and the wonder of this grace goes beyond our limited concepts of time and space that then limits our understanding of grace, that this is much bigger and reaches much wider and encompasses more people than we ever imagined were possible when we're only limited to this little everlasting to everlasting and we can only move forward. Now, I don't know how to go back in time, but I've been places that I never went now, that might sound strange and spooky, but I have been places that I never went, seen things that I haven't seen in places that I was not present and been able to tell that person what was happening in that moment because I was there in that moment. Now, call them out-of-body experiences, call them whatever you wish, but I have had, I have had uh, more than two or three of those in my lifetime, which is very strange and yet very real, but somehow in that moment there is a transcendence 
of the limitations that we have put ourselves in that, that reach us through into that dimension that I've told you. If you think of time being like that, you also have to understand that eternity is like that. Eternity is not somewhere else. Eternity is with us. We are part of that process. So I'm trying to just open your spirit to understand that, that we're in something bigger, something more, something greater uh, that, that works in our lives. Now, if this is true, then when truth drops into our world, truth being what it is, truth does not just land and then go forwards. When truth comes into our world, truth goes in all directions equally at the same time. Therefore, my point, having said all that, is this. Therefore, Passover is not just a one event for one time in the calendar of human thinking on the straight line of time. It is a truth that drops into that pool Call it everlasting to everlasting or eternity or whatever. Every time one of these drops in, the ripples reach out and the ripples of these are being felt at other times in other generations by other people. Does that make sense? It make a little bit of sense. So is there a case then that the pattern of Israel's feast and not just milestones on a walk through history, are they actually part of understanding the everlasting to everlasting. So, just out of interest, so Jesus was not born on the 25th of December. So let me, I'll read this to you because it'll take less time and might be clearer than if I said it myself. Okay, Jesus was not born on December the 25th. He was born at a time when shepherds would be out with their flocks at night, which is not in December. Because that's the winter, and in the bleak midwinter, and all those songs, you know, about, uh, about the cold night and frosty nights, and uh, shepherds were not out on those nights. Shepherds didn't keep their flocks out in the winter nights, because winters there got very, very cold out in the wilderness. So you would not have had shepherds keeping watch of their flocks by night if Jesus was born in December. Secondly, Jesus' parents came to Bethlehem to register in a Roman census, which is in Luke chapter 2. Such censuses were not taken in winter. When temperatures often dropped below freezing, roads were in poor condition, taking a census under such conditions would have been self-defeating. <coughs> so we know that Jesus was born at the time of a census. So that's the second reason why it wouldn't have been December. Now, there is a parallel story with the birth of Jesus, which is the birth of John the Baptist. John the Baptist's mother was Elizabeth. Elizabeth was Mary's cousin. And Elizabeth hadn't had any children, but Elizabeth was praying, and she got blessed with a pregnancy. And uh, it says, since Elizabeth, John's mother, was in the sixth month of her pregnancy when Jesus was conceived, we know that because, because Luke actually says that, that Mary... Met, uh, that Elizabeth was six months into the pregnancy when Mary conceived Jesus. We can determine from that the approximate time of year Jesus was born. If we know when John was born, well, John's father was Zacharias. So Elizabeth's husband, John's father was Zacharias. He was a priest serving in Jerusalem temple uh, during the course of another guy called Abijah who we can trace. So historical calculations indicate the course of service corresponded to June 13th to 19th in that year. So we can actually find out when he was on duty uh, in the temple, which went to about June the 13th to 19th. It was during this time of temple service that Zacharias learned that he and his wife Elizabeth would have a child. That's in Luke chapter 1. So after he completed his service and travelled home, Elizabeth conceived... Assuming John's conception took place near the end of June, adding nine months brings us to the end of March as the most likely time for John's birth. Okay, nine months. Adding another six months, because remember, Elizabeth was six months pregnant with John when Mary became pregnant with Jesus. So we had another six months to that nine months, and that brings us to the end of September as the likely time of Jesus' birth. Say, so, well, okay, so... Well, guess what happens in September? This all happens in September. 
No, this all, this all happens in September. And uh, that's where the significance comes. In the same way that Jesus was crucified on Passover because it meant something that he was the Passover lamb who delivers us from the death that we had come under the curse of sin and death, delivers us from that. Of course, we have the first fruits on the day of resurrection. In the same way, we start thinking, well, was there a parallel? Is it possible that Jesus not only died on a feast day because that had significance, but actually was born on a feast day? And if he did, which feast day and what does that tell us about the work of Christ? So in 4 BC... That was the year Jesus was born. I'm sorry to mess up your calendars. Of, well, it had to be zero because, it, you know, he must have died in 33 AD. I know Domini. But the calendar's all screwed up. And Jesus was actually born probably 4, 4 BC. Um, and he, he was potentially born on, in the Jewish calendar, the 10th of Tishri. You don't need to remember that. It's okay. You don't have to remember that. All you need to know is that the 10th of Tishri, uh, of Tishri fell on September 29th of our present calendar. Now, what you have to know is that day in that year happened to be something called... Let's get, get me pond off. Something called, in Jewish, Yom... Kippur. Okay? Now, not to be confused with Yom Kippur, which is a Scottish holiday. Okay? It's not Yom Kippur. That's a Scottish holiday. It was Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, we know as the Day of Atonement. Now, here's, here's, here's where things torment. In what most of us were raised with, atonement has come to supersede Passover in the understanding of the death of Christ, not the birth of Christ, in that atonement is, was a, a, a ceremony in which in which the priest went into the most holy place once a year with a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people before God, just for one time. It didn't last for more than a year, but he was to go in and plead for the people at the mercy seat, which was in the Holy of Holies, in their tabernacle, and to make atonement for their sins. And so um, something you will have heard us talk about, penal substitutionary atonement, is what latched onto this feast to say, ah, that's what Jesus was doing on the cross. I would say that's not what Jesus was doing on the cross. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. In the same way that for the children of Israel in Egypt, it meant that the, the death angel passed over them, I will pass over you, and death was broken, which was always the problem, remember, not sin, Right? The day you sin, you will die. If we defeat death, we defeat sin. So Christ's work on the cross was to defeat death. If he defeats death, he defeats sin, which is why the resurrection was actually more important than the crucifixion. Because once death is defeated, sin has lost its power. And of course, there's a whole story around that, which we won't go in depth into that today. But, but it could be, and potentially is, and would make a lot of sense that Jesus' nativity actually occurred on the Day of Atonement, this Feast of Yom Kippur. Um, this would be interesting for several reasons. Um, one of them was that on the Day of Atonement, it was all focused on the high priest. And the high priest went into the presence of God, put in... And he went in alone and he had to come out and his coming out of that presence was an indicator that the people were fine, God was okay with the people. That was the indicator. Now isn't it interesting that, that Jesus persistently in prophecy and in declaration in the New Testament is known as the great high priest, that he is our 
high priest, that he functions as a high priest in the context of relating to God on behalf of the people. So on the Day of Atonement, the high priest came out of a dark place to declare sin is dealt with. It's all done. I, as the high priest, come to tell you in my authority that it's okay now. So isn't it fascinating, potentially then, that Jesus should come out of the womb of Mary, out of the dark place, out of the inner sanctuary, as God's high priest, on the day of atonement, with him would come a declaration, it's okay. So actually we can then say it was okay from when Jesus was born. It wasn't just okay from when he died. He was a declarer of the fact it's okay now. In fact, it's always been okay. And I've come to show you that this goes back further than you ever imagined and reaches forward farther than you would ever dream. So let's just build this up just for, a, just for two or three minutes. So the Day of Atonement was and is the most solemn Jewish feast day. Everything was focused towards the anticipation of the high priest's exit from the temple's most holy place. When he finally came forth, it was evidence that their sins had been purged away and all was made right with God. So there was an evidence the moment Jesus was born that sins were purged and all was made right with God. But while many worshippers massed upon the temple site... A few humble shepherds saw the true high priest after he had come out from the most holy place of Mary's womb. So the crowds are all waiting in Jerusalem for the high priest to come out. But these few shepherds caught it and they watched the true high priest come into the world and know that all were made right by God. Now another interesting stipulation for Yom Kippur in the Levitical writings which were the Levitical writings were the rules about how the priests must behave and what the laws were on the day of atonement get this the priest would remove his beautiful glorious garments and put on ordinary white linen which was the garb of the common priest the symbolism is plain the son of God would lay aside his royal robes leave the adoration of the angels and the bliss of heaven and clothe himself with humanity and share in the dismal lot of humankind and the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. Christ's birth in Bethlehem was thus the beginning of the true Yom Kippur, God's initial making good on his promise to redeem the race. The headlines in heaven certainly read, Son of God takes human flesh, first beachhead established in Operation Redemption. So isn't it fascinating that even what the priest did, not only in coming out of the holy place to make a declaration, but the fact that on that day he got rid of his royal robes. And we're told in Philippians that Christ, who was the word in heaven, laid aside every vestige of godliness to take upon him the form of human flesh. Why? For this moment here. This moment of atonement. Because this is where it occurs. So the true significance of this can really only be understood through the most accurate English definition of the word atonement. So some of you have find this being complicated, but, but look at this. This is what atonement means in English. Okay, at one meant. Literally does, that's the word. At one meant. Now you tell me if there was ever a time like the birth of Jesus when he becomes a human that God was ever at one moment with humanity. That was the moment that he was at one moment because he was born in human flesh. Therefore the feast of at one moment is not some after event to try and solve the problem of humanity's failure before an angry God, but it's actually a manifestation of the process of grace that declared the moment Jesus was born from the womb of the Virgin, you are at one with God because now he is at one with you and has become human flesh. That's the true understanding of at one and the truth that we've not really been told, that Jesus most likely, I can't prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt, but it would make a lot of sense, was actually born 
on the day of atonement when he became at one month with human flesh to bring the life of heaven into what had now become the death that was in earth. If this is correct, then the model must fit the purpose and location of the other feasts in the process. So the question would be, at a cursory glance, does it? What's trumpets about? Trumpets is about announcement and pronunciation. It's about announcement and proclamation. There was announcement and proclamation that Christ would be born in Bethlehem. If you bear in mind that the Magi, these Zoroastrian Persian astrologers, must have been aware of this either at the time or two years before this for them to turn up according to what the scripture says. You know that there was announcement and pronunciation. So the Feast of Trumpets actually was occurring to announce he is coming, it's getting ready, be there, be at the stable, be at the manger, it's happening, this is going to go. It happened to Mary, an annunciation, a proclamation, a trumpet. It happened to Joseph, a trumpet, here's what's going to happen. So we've got the Feast of Trumpets declaring the birth, which is the atonement, the atonement, and then of course we've got tabernacles. Tabernacles was a celebration that the Israelites had that when they were moving from where they had been to where they were supposed to go, they lived in booths, they lived in tents, they lived in not permanent dwellings, but tents and homes. Here's what Jesus said about himself, a body you have prepared for me, I have come to do your will. So Jesus lived in a tent called Jesus. The word lived in a tent called Jesus. The Christ lived in a tent called Jesus. But that was the tent, that was the tabernacle. So we have all three of these feasts happening right here. Now, here's the issue. If these are a set, and the birth of Jesus was the atonement, and the heralding of that birth was trumpets, and the living of Jesus in, in human flesh becomes tabernacles, what about these? Because we seem to get out of step. Well, I would say we haven't got out of step at all because these are not one-time and only occurrences throughout history. As I've said to you, these are like the stone that falls in the pond. They keep going outwards. So it's not one Passover. It's not one atonement. But you can see the model goes all the way through history. So let me just quickly run this back for you. So the question is, when was the first Passover? No, it wasn't when Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. Revelations 13.8 says that Jesus was the lamb slain from when? The foundation of the earth. What was the Passover? The Passover was the lamb slain. When was the first Passover? Before ever a person existed on the face of the planet. The pebble was in the pond and it was sending out its ripples because the lamb was slain from before the foundation of the earth. Now, I must explain this again because I think I have to get it in your spirit when you think, but how can that have happened then? And Jesus died 2,000 years ago on the cross and he was the lamb. And I've told you, when you look into the night sky and you see a star, you're not seeing the star, you're seeing something that occurred 100 200, 1,000, 5,000, 10,000 years ago that now becomes visible but happened in the distant past before you were ever born, but you observe it now. And when we see Jesus hanging on the cross, we are observing something that is real and it's a correct expression and you could touch it and feel it, but something that had already happened and would continue to be happening. It's not a one thing it's a whole thing that is from everlasting to everlasting. Therefore, when we grab it, it's from everlasting to everlasting for us also. So you say, what about unleavened bread? It was about the bread that they baked with no yeast in it. Well, you only have to look at the book of Genesis in the process of creation to realize that right in the very beginning, we had the whole issue of in the beginning was God and we have the Word, the Spirit, and the light, it's unleavened, it's uncorrupted, it's the word of God, it's the light of God, it's the spirit of God. There's no yeast in it. There's no ego. 
There's no selfish ambition. There's no corruption. It's unleavened bread. Right at the very beginning, we can see a model of this feast emerging. And then you say, well, what about first fruits that we celebrate now as the resurrection? Well, what about first fruits potentially being creation? And God said, let there be. And out of nothing came something. Out of the darkness came the light. Out of the emptiness came the fullness. What is that but resurrection? What is that but first fruits? There was nothing and God said and boom, out it comes. That's a first fruit. So what I'm showing you is that this was happening and we come through atonement and we reach tabernacles here, Jesus living in body and then we come to the cross and we come again to Passover and unleavened bread and first fruits and weeks which is Pentecost which is all about the celebration of spirit in us, life in us, God with man working with man, which was happening way before our day of Pentecost, but was happening God by the Spirit, in the Spirit, with the Spirit, filling people with the Spirit. All of this happening again because they're more like the pebbles in the pond than they are actually these isolated historic events in one ethnic group of people's history. Those ripples are reaching us today. So let me finish this off. I hope it's made sense. Um, okay, so let me, let, me, let me read you this one scripture from 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7 through 10. We speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. So this is part of that wisdom that was destined for our glory before time ever began that we then become participants of. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. Okay? So we get to see by his spirit what it is that God has revealed that encompasses that wisdom that keeps us away from that law-dominated, guilt-driven, uh, devil-obsessed understanding of, of the divine and releases us to this wonderful God who by grace, right from the very beginning, is releasing all this and just gives us different insights and different images about who he is and what he's been about all the time. So, let me, uh, let me finish by reading this. So, what we've done is made religious what is and, and was and always should be a revelation of divine love and the nature behind that love. The process is divinely designed, not as a reaction to sin, but as a revelation of purpose. Now, everything I was ever taught, all that it had at its root was a reaction to sin. But I'm proposing to you that the process is divinely designed not as a reaction to sin, but as a revelation of purpose. And what we're seeking to do in our journey here is to understand the revelation of that wonderful purpose. So here's, here's the bit I wanted to read as just finish. The many substitutionary atonement theories. That's the whole thing's about God has to be paid, the devil has to be paid. Some sucker has to die because you're terrible and God's either got to kill you or something and he won't be happy unless something dies. And even then, you know, as Chris said, I love this phrase, you, you saved but not safe. You know, war betide you if you get out. All that kind of stuff. That's all part of that substitutionary atonement theories which have dominated the last 800 years of Christianity suggest that God demanded Jesus to be a blood sacrifice to atone for our sin-drenched humanity. The terrible and uncritiqued premise is that God could need payment and even a very violent transaction to be able to love and accept God's own children. These theories are based on retributive justice rather than restorative justice that the prophets and Jesus taught. Now, there was an ancient, about 800s, a guy called Duns Scotus, who put some things down. One of the things he said is, the incarnation of God and the redemption of the world could never be a mere mop-up exercise in response to human sinfulness, but had to be the proactive work of God from the very beginning. We were chosen in Christ before the world was made, Ephesians, 4 verse 1, Ephesians 1 verse 4. 
Our sin could not possibly be the motive for the incarnation. Because if what I'm telling you is not true, our sin is the motive for the incarnation. We were sinners, so Jesus had to be born. That's like, you didn't think this one out very well, did you, God? If you would have to go to all that trouble and pay all that price, which, of course, penal substitutionary atonement exalts that and says, isn't it wonderful that God would murder his son because we were so terribly sinful? But what if that's not the canvas that we're painting on? What if this wasn't some afterthought of intervention? Our sin could not possibly be the motive for the incarnation or we were steering the cosmic ship. Only perfect love and divine self-revelation could inspire God to come in human form. God never merely reacts, but supremely and freely acts. Out of love, salvation is much more about at one moment from God's side than any needed atonement from our side. Jesus did not come to change the mind of God about humanity. It did not need changing. Jesus came to change the mind of humanity about God. God in Jesus moved people beyond the counting, weighing and punishing model which the ego prefers to a world in which God's mercy makes any economic uh, which, to a world in which God's mercy makes any economy of merit, sacrifice, reparation or atonement both unhelpful and unnecessary. Jesus undid once and for all notions of human and animal sacrifice common in most ancient religions and replaced them with an economy of grace and love. Jesus was meant to be a game changer for the human psyche and for religion itself. But when we begin negatively or focused on a problem, we never get off the hamster wheel of shame, separation, and violence. Rather than focusing on sin, Jesus, the crucified one, pointed us towards the primal solidarity with the very suffering of God and thus of all creation. This changes everything. Change the starting point and you change the trajectory. And even the final goal. Love is the beginning the way itself, and the final consummation. God does not love us because we are good. God loves us because God is good. Nothing we can do will either decrease or increase God's eternal and infinite eagerness to love. That's written by Richard Rohr. And that was God beginning with a beginning in mind to which there is no end. So begin with a beginning in mind. All right, we're done.